we have spent the last 13 weeks since the second week in January walking through this book of Nehemiah, and I hope that your heart has been blessed. I know as I have studied and I have walked through this book uh, looking at, God, what do you want to show me? Uh, I know my heart's been blessed. I know God has revealed things in my life that, that I have trusted Him again and renewed for Him again to, to build and to rebuild in my life. And we've entitled this series, The God Who Builds, meaning this, that God is faithful to remember and act upon His promises to build His people and His church for His glory. And as we've walked through every single verse and every single chapter in this book, we have seen that reality, that we serve a faithful God and He is always building. He never takes a nap. He never goes to sleep. He never uh, doesn't answer you when you pray and when you call out to Him that He is hearing, that He is working, that He is building, that He is rebuilding, that that is the God that we serve. And we can say that today because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ by sending His Son to live and die and be risen for our sins so that we can have hope today if we placed our faith and trust in Him that He rebuilt the greatest thing that our sin torn, tore down. And that is a relationship with a holy and a perfect God and a home forever with Him that awaits us when we pass from this life to the next. And so we've been walking through that theme and we close it out today. And I hope, I have mine with me, that as we close out this series, if you haven't done so already, that you've looked at the back of that card with, with things that, that you have written like I have written, and I can look through those things and say, man, praise God that you rebuilt that. God, I've been praying for this for a long time, and God, I saw you build that in these last 13 weeks. God, I was praying for this, and though you didn't answer it in this way, I saw you answer it in another way, and today I can say that, God, you are the God who builds and is building, and so I hope that's true for you, and so I'm going to get right into Nehemiah 13, so I gave you enough time to get there. Um, would you look at Nehemiah 13 with me, and I'm actually going to read through this entire chapter, all right? So, so I want you to stick with me, and I want to I start in verse 1. It says this, on the day that they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. So if you remember last Last week, they were having a joyous celebration. Do you remember? They were dedicating the temple. And they were being reminded and reminding themselves of how faithful God was to take this group of people who were absolutely hopeless and to bring Nehemiah to rally the troops to build these walls in 52 days. The people had moved into the city. They had seen God work faithfully. And they were having an amazing celebration of all that God has done. So verses 1 through 3 are a continuation of chapter 12. And one of the things that they see is they were to separate themselves from foreign people that had no desire to serve God and to worship God. And so they are obeying that. And now we come to verse 4 where we almost have a time gap. And we don't know how long it was. doesn't tell us. But it's almost as though we have a scene change like in a movie. So verse 4, now all of a sudden time has passed. Many people think several years. And now we come to verse 4. And now would you look at it with me? 
It says, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandments to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So Nehemiah went back to King Artaxerxes. Remember, he was a part of King Artaxerxes' court. We saw that in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. And King Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. Well, now Nehemiah has gone back to once again serve in the King Artaxerxes' court. And look at what happens. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. So he goes back again. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. Let me stop there. So do you remember Tobiah? Like, do you remember this guy? Like, he was one of those haters, do you remember? In chapter 2 it started, where Tobiah was, was an Ammonite who was one of those people who did not want Israel to rebuild the walls. Like, he was absolutely against it. Do you remember him? And he was the one that was always wanting to cause division and discord and doubt in the people of Israel. And, and I don't know if when you read that, you were like, are you kidding me? Like Eliashib the priest who was given a responsibility to, to oversee the supplies and the storerooms in the temple, he now allows Tobiah to set up shop in the temple and actually starts taking out the supplies that were meant for worship so that Tobiah could reside there. And Nehemiah finds out about this after being gone for what many people believe several years And Nehemiah comes back, and he's hot. Like, that's what it means in the Hebrew. He's just hot, right? I was very angry. And look at what he does. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So he literally is just going nuts right now. Like, Nehemiah is overturning things. He's throwing stuff out. He's like, what in the world's going on here? Tobiah doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong in the temple. You've replaced the things that were meant for worship for Tobiah to reside here. And Nehemiah just starts cleaning house. Like, just imagine that in your mind, what that looks like. And look at verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back... There, the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. And I also found out that portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So do you remember what happened in chapter 10? Where the people of Israel said, hey, we're going to commit that we're going to give to the work of God, that we are going to tithe back what God has given us and we're going to give back to the house of God, to the place of worship, so that the Levites can do what they need to do in leading us in worship, so that the priests can have what they need to be able to lead us in worship. And so Nehemiah comes back and he not only finds Tobiah actually living in the temple, but he also sees that the people of Israel had stopped doing what they committed to do that we, that we saw in chapter 10. 
And then do you remember in chapter 4, just the previous chapter, how they actually said, hey, we're going to give joyfully back to what God has done. Remember that phrase? They are not going to neglect the house of God. And just a few years, Nehemiah comes back and finds out that they haven't done what they've needed to do. And so the Levites are like, man, we got to go find a way to provide for our families because we got to eat. Look what it says in verse 11. So I confronted the officials. Man, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall? So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah asked that because they just committed not too long ago to not forsake the house of God. And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. <laughs> I can just imagine, right? All right, we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting right now. And you're all going to sit and you're going to listen. Look at verse 12. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, okay? Then they, they come back and they're like, all right, we were wrong. Then I, all Judah brought the tithe of grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakor, the son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Now look at Nehemiah in verse 14. Remember me, O God. Can you sense Nehemiah's frustration? God, if you don't do anything else, just remember me. Just remember me. And Nehemiah says, remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps, heaps, not a little bit, not looking for a loophole like we talked before, remember? Well, this is what God's Word says about separating ourselves and having a day just to concentrate on who God is and to rest from our work. No, man, they've totally disregard, like, not just a little bit of grain, heaps, say heaps, heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into jerusalem on the sabbath day and i warned them on that day when they sold food tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the sabbath to the people of judah in jerusalem itself do you remember the commitment that they made in chapter 10 like, we're not going to sell goods on the Sabbath, on the day that God has told us to, to just concentrate on Him. Like, we're not going to do that. We're not even going to buy from other people that want to sell that. And you see now, they've totally disregarded that. Look at verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah. Like, Nehemiah is just having lots of confrontation. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster? So what he's saying here is, is are you, have you forgotten already that the whole reason why we're in captivity is because we, our, our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers disobeyed God, and now you're doing it again? Like, do you not see everything that God has done? Do you not see the walls? Do you not see them built up again? Do you, have you forgotten already God's faithfulness? 
Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Look at verse 19. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load may be, might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So he's like, you're going to obey this one way or the other. Verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wars lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Look at this. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Like Nehemiah is like, I don't know why you're outside the walls waiting. You want to come in here? You can come in here and we're going to like duke it out. (laughs) Can you sense Nehemiah's frustration? I just think that's such (laughs) such a humorous phrase i don't know why it makes me chuckle but like if you do so again i will lay hands on you from that time on and then like shocker right from that time on they did not come on the sabbath (laughs) i wonder why verse 22 then i commanded the levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gate so hey all right we're gonna separate we're gonna set ourselves apart again remember that's what purification was we're gonna set ourselves apart again and remind ourselves what the temple and what worship is for and they come and they guarded the gates to keep the sabbath day holy he says remember this also in my favor oh my god and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love like god remember me remember me You see that three times in this chapter. Verse 23, unfortunately it doesn't stop there. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they, their children, could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them. Look at this. And beat some of them. And pulled out their hair. That's crazy. Let's not get into whether or not Nehemiah was sinning at this point. Because he had probably, like, he was not acting out of grace right here. Can we all all agree on that? Right? Probably not. He probably had a weak point here. Because I don't see anywhere where it says that it's good to pull out people's hair. By the way, that's not what happened to me. (laughs) Just so you know. I just have too much testosterone. <laughs> I thought I would get a bigger laugh. But. but I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Like, like as, as humorous as that wording is, those verses have, are just troubling and, and they're sorrowful. Like, Remember the commandment that they made in chapter 10, verse 30. Hey, we're not going to marry people that don't serve God as the one true God. And they already broke it. And it actually had consequences on their children because their children couldn't even speak the language of the people. Which we could venture out to say that their children probably also didn't even know who God was. Look at what it, look at what it says after he pulls out their hair. He says, I made them take an oath and... In the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And look at, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? 
Among many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Talk more about that. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. I get out of here. Like, did you see how they just subtly were letting the people that were actually against them, letting them come back in? And the slow fade that happened. And Nehemiah comes back after all that he did, and he's like, what in the world is going on? I haven't been gone that long. Most people believe that the reason why Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem is because he heard all of this was going on. And look what it says in verse 30. For I cleansed them from every foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each for his work. And look how he ends verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for my good. Like Nehemiah just stands and says, God, would you remember me? You know what's, what's sad about the way that this book of Nehemiah ends is that this is the last passage. Like this is the last record of the building of the walls and this is the last record of God intervening on Israel's behalf before Jesus comes back. So from the time that this happens to the time that Jesus comes in the form of a baby, 400 years. 400 years. Here's the title of the message this morning that I want to give you if you're taking notes. Here it is. God's faithfulness or my fickleness. So we've got to ask ourselves this morning as we close out this book, which is going to be the theme of my life? You say, well, what do you mean by fickle? Let me define it as Webster's Dictionary defines it. Fickle is defined like this. It's marked by a lack of steadfastness, constancy, or stability. Like for those of us, can we think back to junior high? Can you think back to, to that time frame or high school? For those of you who, who dated, remember the fickleness? Like she likes me today, she doesn't like me the next day. He likes me today, he doesn't like me. Remember how that affected you, right? Or, or, or you had dating relationships, fickle, remember? Like, do you like me, do you don't like me? Are you into me, or are you not into me? Right, right, think about that. Think about relationships, right, in, in junior high or high school. Well, one day they're, they're my best friend, the next day they're not. Like, that fickleness. What's sad is, for many of us, junior high has stayed with us. But think about if you're a fan, right? Don't you hate those sports fans that, like, whoever the team that's winning, like, all of a sudden they're buying the t-shirt and the hat. Right? And when they, when they lose, I'm um, not about it. Like, that's fickle, okay? That's fickle. What is faithfulness defined by? Here's how Webster's defines it steadfast in affection or allegiance. Like, that's God. He's faithful. That's our definition of the God who builds. He's faithful, He's not fickle. And what this book of Nehemiah reminds me of, and though I can look at the end of this book and say, man, what a downer. Like, this series was great up to this point, and this is how we're going to end? Like, what a downer. But here's what the book of Nehemiah, as I look at the book of Nehemiah, here's what it reminds me of. 
that no ordinary man, that no man or no woman in and of themselves can meet the standard that God has. And the standard is what? Perfection. As much as Israel said, God, we want to serve you, we want to live for you, we want to do this for you, in and of themselves, they couldn't. And we see that throughout Israel's history. In and of myself, I cannot live up to God's standard of perfection. I'm a sinner. So here's what Nehemiah reminds me of. It reminds me that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to do what I couldn't do. That Jesus' faithfulness for us, for me, for you, demonstrates God's faithfulness to me, to you. That today I can say that God is faithful because Jesus Christ lived faithfulness for me. He lived the law perfectly. He met the perfect standard because he knew I could not. And that's what this story reminds me of. See, I'm prone to be fickle, aren't you? I'm prone to be fickle in my relationship with God. But I thank God today that he's faithful. And his faithfulness, get this, his faithfulness is not an excuse so that I can go live however way I want. Well, God's faithful, so I can be fickle, and I'm okay with being fickle, and I can, I can say I want to serve God, and I can live like a hellion throughout the rest of the week, and, and it's okay because God's faithful. Listen, if that's your attitude, then I venture to guess and can make a pretty good guess that you really don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because God's faithfulness is not a motivation for me to be fickle. God's, God's faithfulness is actually a motivation for me to be faithful to him in my life. Did you get that? God's faithfulness is a motivator to me to be faithful. So here's the idea that I want you to get today if you're taking notes. God's faithfulness towards me is greater than my fickleness toward him. Aren't you thankful for that? That God's faithfulness toward me is greater than my fickleness toward him. And like I said before, his faithfulness is a motivation for my faithfulness and how I live for him. That's what we saw in Romans 2.40. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about repentance? It's his loving kindness that leads me to repentance. Like it's Jesus' faithfulness and his loving kindness towards me that actually motivates me to want to be faithful to him. And so here's what I want to do this morning in the time that I have left, which is not a lot. Is four ways that God's faithfulness motivates me to be faithful and not fickle in my relationship with him. Here's the first one. God's faithfulness motivates me to protect my heart. To protect my heart. Let me point your attention to verses 4 through 9. That's where I see this, this first point. It's because Eliashib, the priest, has been given the responsibility to guard, to protect the storerooms of the temple where, where the things were kept so the people had the supplies and the means to be able to worship. And what happens? Eliashib lets Tobiah back in. He lets someone who has no regard for God to come in and reside in the temple. And because he allows Tobiah to come in, what happens? The supplies that are needed to worship God are actually put out. 
And what does Nehemiah do? He comes in and what does he do? Remember? He kicks Tobiah out and he says, no, we're bringing back in what you took out, Eliashib. And when I look at this passage of Scripture and I'm reminded of God's faithfulness to me through Jesus Christ, what it What God's faithfulness does is it says, when I understand what God has done for me through Jesus Christ, there's a motivation that I want to protect my heart. Picture your heart as a a house. Picture that. And God's design for your heart is to be a place of worship. Because what you love is what you worship. And my concern is is that in our nature, we want to compartmentalize our hearts. And if we're to picture our house as a home, and and we fall into that desire to compartmentalize our house, here's what happens. Our house, our heart becomes very choppy. There's a lot of different rooms. And we compartmentalize that. And so... We see a picture on the screen of that. And so you have this house and picture your heart being this and your nature to want to compartmentalize and to say to yourself, well, this part of my heart is for God, but this part over here, this is for me. And this part over here, oh, we don't even open up that door. We don't even deal with that. Like God's not even, it's not time yet. And that's exactly what was happening back here in the time of Nehemiah in the temple that, that Eliashib who was given trust to oversee the temple, had allowed Tobiah to come in, and now the temple was compartmentalized that this part is for Tobiah, who has no regard for God, but this part is okay. We're still going to worship God. Here's the thing. God doesn't want our heart, our home, our place, where our worship ought to stem from to be compartmentalized. You know what he wants? He wants an open floor plan. Open floor plan. Like, no walls, Just access to everything. Like that's what God wants. He wants open access to your heart. That it's not a portion of my heart is sold out to God, but a portion of my heart is sold out to me. God wants it all. He wants it all. And Proverbs 4.23 is an interesting verse. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. See, i got to be ruthless in protecting my heart. And what motivates me to protect my heart, to guard my heart, to say, God, you have open access to it. I'm not going to compartmentalize. I'm not going to say, well, well, this day's for you, but the other six days I'm going to live like the devil. Or, or God, there's, there's certain aspects that I want to keep for myself, and I want to close that door, and you don't have access to that room. God, you can have access to everything else. It doesn't work that way. Nehemiah wasn't satisfied in that way. He was ruthless in protecting God's house. And we need to be ruthless in guarding our heart. Look at what Nehemiah does in verses 8 and 9. Remember? He like kicks over everything, throws everything out. He says, this stuff's going out so that God can once again come back in and reside those rooms that you told him he was no longer welcome. See, the way that we protect our heart here's what we do and we take out the trash every day we take it out go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago that daily confession and repentance that god where is it where i'm wanting to close off an area of my heart away from you god i gotta stop that i gotta take out the trash 
God, you want unhindered access. Praise God, I have unhindered access to you through Jesus Christ. So God, why would I not want you to have unhindered access into my life? I'm taking out the trash. And I'm going to put back what I took out. Now listen, let me be clear here. I'm not talking about salvation. That once I place my faith and trust in Christ, I am His and He is mine. But I can allow sin to occupy and allow my heart to produce idols and allow my heart to want to compartmentalize. That's what I'm talking about. I've got to take out the trash and put back what my sin has closed the door off from. Here's what that looks like. I'm daily reading God's Word. I'm daily running to God's forgiveness. I'm daily relying on God's strength. Saying, God, I can't do this, but praise God, you can through the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given me through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what rooms have you closed off to God's faithfulness? Because God's faithfulness motivates me to protect my heart. Here's the second thing. God's faithfulness motivates me to provide for God's work. Find that in verses 10 through 14. And I don't have time to read it this morning again. But how it wasn't too long since the people forgot the privilege that they had been given to provide financially for God's work. See, get this. My motivation for providing for God's work is not guilt. It's not. It's not going to motivate me. It may work for a time, but it's not going to last. It's not guilt. It's not some fancy sales pitch. Not some amazing PowerPoint presentation. It's not my motivation. Here's what it is. It's just obedience to God because there's this realization of how faithful God is to me. I mean, the people of Israel here, they forgot that the walls that they walked by every single day reminded them of God's faithfulness to them. That the privilege that they had again to worship God and to be protected to be able to do so, that that was God's faithfulness to them. They forgot that. And so as a result, they stopped providing for God's work. And I wonder how many of us sit here today and we say to ourselves all the time, why can't I pay the bills? Why am I always moving from job to job? Why do I always seem to be falling behind? Why can't we get on top of this? And I wonder if we would ask ourselves, man, am I giving God first of what he's given me? I've never met anyone, never, can't recall one single time where someone has met with me and has said, man, I've faithfully given God first in my finances, but my needs aren't being met. Never seen it. Never experienced it in my life. Now, I've experienced people that says, well, I can't buy this or that because I'm giving God first. But I've never met someone who says, can't meet my needs because I'm giving God what's first. I've never seen it happen. And and Nehemiah's desire for these people is to bring themselves back, not to look at providing for God's work as a burden, but to see it as a blessing. And to believe that God is able, he's faithful And what I love in verse 13, would you look at it, is Nehemiah says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find people that are reliable and trustworthy. 
so that what is given goes to God's work. And don't you want that to be true of you? That when God looks at you, he says, there's a person who's faithful with what I've entrusted to them. To use Nehemiah's words, they're reliable. I want that said of me. Then when God looks, he says, there's a person. They're not perfect, but they're looking to my faithfulness as the motivator to be faithful and reliable, to provide for the work that I want to do. And let me just stop here and say, God's going to provide for what he wants to build. Whether I do it or not, I just miss out on the blessing. The second thing, here's the third thing. God's faithfulness motivates me not only to protect my heart and provide for God's work, but here's the third thing, to prioritize my time. To prioritize my time. Verses 15 through 22, do you remember there? Like they said, we're going to remember the Sabbath. We're going to keep it holy. We're going to bring ourselves back to what we agreed to and our ancestors agreed to in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, that we're going to take a day and we're going to commit that we are going to celebrate and worship God and we're going to set it apart as holy. We're going to set it apart. And Nehemiah comes back and it's already fallen apart. Listen, do you know that the word Sabbath Like we define it in meaning rest, and I would agree with that, but it has more of a connotation of not just rest, but it actually means stop. Just look at the person next to you and just say those words. Stop. Wasn't that fun? Like that's what Sabbath means. It literally means stop. So look at listen to Exodus 28. I'm going to read it to you. Remember the Sabbath, right? Remember this stop day and keep it holy, set it apart. Exodus 20 and 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, stopped working on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the stop day and made it holy. So this day is a stop day. It's a day that's different from the other day. Listen, why did God rest in Genesis 1? Did he rest because he was tired? Obviously not. Was he needing a timeout? Was he getting a little frayed around the edges? Obviously not. God did it to make this point. This point right here. That I don't need it, but you do. I don't need it, but you do. So I'm going to show you how important it is, so I'm going to do it. The stop day. See, God's faithfulness motivates me to prioritize my time. Tell me if this has been your, this is you. You're like, man, I always have a time problem. Is this you? Man, I can't get to it. I can't get it all done. Why am I always worn out? Why am I always feeling frazzled? Why can't I ever make ends meet? Is that you? Do you have a time problem this morning? Because here's what amazes me. So many Christians have convictions, godly convictions about the Bible being God's word. And I would say amen to that. Convictions that stem from God's word about how Jew Jesus is. He's God's son. He's God in the flesh. He's part of the Trinity. And I would say amen to that. You would say, man, I have convictions about from God's word that Jesus is coming again. And I would say amen to that. And we could go on and on and on. Like we have convictions founded on God's word about that. But you know what amazes me? Is how many Christians, though they have convictions about all of that stuff that is fundamental to our faith, we're lax on our conviction about the church 
and the importance of gathering together with God's people to worship Him. You say, well, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, well, I listen to the podcast. I watch service online or on video. And man, if I've led you to believe that that listening to a sermon is all that church is, then forgive me. It's important. But what we do up here is just as important. What you do in that lobby and encouraging one another is just as important. What we do when we lift up our voices together is just as important. See, if you did a study, which I, which I looked at and researched, that frequency of church attendance is way down. Way down. And here, just so, just so you know, I don't think it's because people don't love God. I think that would be very judgmental to say. And I don't believe it's because people don't love their church. Here's the reason. I believe it's because church is no longer a personal soul commitment of gratitude to the God who has faithfully redeemed me and sustained me. Like That's why we gather. Every aspect of what we gather is a point where we can collectively say, God, you are faithful. I'm here for you. That I want to take time out of my week, not that I don't do it every day, but I want to take time out of my week with other people that are committed to the same thing and say, God, we want to recognize that you are faithful. God, I want to prioritize my time that way rather than I go to church when it works for me. That's what the children of Israel fell into. They were pragmatic. Like when it works for me, we'll do it. And when it doesn't, we won't. I quickly want to give you some reasons that we miss church. You ready for this? We'll see how many amens we get out of this. Ready? Number one, there's good reasons. There's good reasons, right? Someone gets sick. Like there's health reasons. You can't get out to come. Some people have to work on on the times that, that we have worship services. There's good reasons, right? What about this? Number two, man, just extra leisure. Like... Just want to just enjoy the day. How about this one, number three? All right, here's where it's going to get really quiet. You ready for this? Kig sports or lessons. Right? Well, the soccer coach won't let my kid play if he doesn't practice on Sunday during the worship time of my church. Awesome. Awesome if you've used that to cause you to miss church. Like, like you've just, like, amazing. Like, what have you just given your kid to believe about who God is? Can I just say that we as parents have to stop just affirming all the time that our kid is awesome? Right? Like, I know it's Mother's Day, right? I know we just had baby dedications up here. So some of you are like, what are you saying right now? But we got to stop communicating with our actions that our kids are first. God's first. And what we can use is what has been entrusted to us by God. We can easily make it an idol. And I wonder this morning, 
if that, if we're honest with ourselves, is our heart. Listen, you know what our kids need to be reminded of? They're not awesome, but God is awesome. God is awesome. Everything flows from that. And when I say, wait a minute, we're not compromising this time. Man, I'm driving that stake into the ground and into my child's heart. I'm driving it in. How about this one? I'm too tired. Too tired. I can even, like Sunday morning, I know, is a big deal. I remember when our kids were little. Like, like it's, like, it's just like getting, herding cats, right? Come on, kids, get in the car. We're going to God's house today. And you, maybe this is like you, your kids are, maybe they're a little older now and they're teenagers and they're like, seriously, dad, I was up so late. You know what your answer? You should have thought about that before. We're getting into the car. We're going to God's house today. Like if, if your house is saying, dad, are we going to church this week? Like we already have a problem. Already got a problem. Too tired. Here's the last one. Too busy. How often am I saying I have to work late? I still can't believe I don't have that finished. You told me you would paint the bedroom last week. All right, skip church. Listen, when we're inserting church at the point of convenience, man, we've already failed. First place, sacrifice over convenience. Listen, write this down. As tithing is to stewardship of money, so weekly church attendance is to stewardship of my time. As tithing is to stewardship of money, so weekly church attendance is to stewardship of my time. Listen, I know there's exceptions. That's why I said, number one, there's good reasons, right? But is this is what, would this be something that your household would say, this characterizes? I wonder, go home today and ask your kids. Do you believe we value going to church? They'll tell you. And what motivates me to do that is not duty, is not a guilt trip, because that's not what I'm trying to give. It's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what motivates me to prioritize my time. Here's the last one, and we're done. Not just to protect my heart. God's faithfulness motivates me also to provide for God's work, to prioritize my time. But here's the fourth one, to be principled in my relationships. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But you see there what Jeremiah, or what, sorry, what Nehemiah finds in verses 23 through 27 that the Jews had started to marry people that didn't serve God and the effect that it had on their children. And Nehemiah even makes reference to Solomon, who is considered the wisest man outside of Jesus, who was the God man, the wisest human sinful being that ever lived on the face of this earth. And Nehemiah points at him and says, even Solomon. Because he, he let his heart compartmentalize and say, I know that God's word says for me to not intermingle with people, intermarry with people that don't serve God, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to be pragmatic about my faith rather than to be principled by my faith. And what happened? Nehemiah says it even brought him down. 
See, God's faithfulness motivates me to be principled in my relationships. Aren't you thankful that we had families up here that says, man, I want to be principled in my relationships. I want to say yes to God's way according to God's word so that we can experience God's best. We want to be principled in our relationships. Listen, this morning, are you dating someone who's not a believer? Because I said this a few weeks ago, every date's a possible mate. You engage to someone who's not a believer? I remember I told this to someone that I cared about tremendously. And they were struggling. They're like, man, I'm trying to please God. And, and I haven't found a guy who, who loves and serves the Lord yet. And I want to get married so bad. And I said, this, I said this to them. And I wrote it down. So I want to make sure I say it right. That I can be, you can be more lonely married to the wrong person then you can be single waiting for the right person. And listen, I know we have families in here that, that you married someone who wasn't a believer, and by God's grace, he brought that spouse to come to Christ and praise God for that. And I said this a few weeks ago. So I'm not saying that God, what did I say at the beginning of this message? God's faithfulness toward me trumps my fickleness towards him. Praise God for that. But I think we could also say, man, I could have avoided a lot of difficult things. So here's what I want us to understand with this relationship thing and really with our lives. Like, when did we start to think that God was okay and it was okay for us to be okay with less than God's best? Like, when was that okay for me to settle? And when I see the end of Nehemiah and I hear the words of Nehemiah, remember me, look at it, the end of the book, the end of the chapter, first thir- chapter 13, remember me, oh my God, for good. You know what I see in that? I see that pointing to God's faithfulness that would come 400 years later through Jesus Christ. See, God wasn't done yet with his people. And God's not done with you, and God's not done with me. And today, as we wrap up this series, what I want us to say is, remember me, oh my God, for Christ's good on my behalf. God, I thank you that you are faithful. So God, I want to protect my heart. Unhindered access, God. No doors shut off. God, I want to be joyful in providing for your work and what you've given me. Lord, I want to prioritize my time. I want want my household to know that God's first, that we value gathering together in God's house and having a day that's set apart to worship him. Man, I want to be principled in my relationships. And so I just want to take time right now, and let's just have quiet. And let's evaluate our heart. We spent 13 weeks in this book being reminded of God's faithfulness. And maybe there's something in your heart that you say, God, I'm opening that door. Let's just take time. Let's examine our hearts during this time.